You're listening to Berlin Psychoanalytic Podcast. This episode is part of our series on attachment theory. Therapeutic Implications of Attachment Theory with Dr. Nicolas Lorenzini. In thinking of how attachment theory could actually be used in psychotherapy, uh, all this um, incredible insights that we've been learning in the last videos, uh, how do we use that and as a psychotherapist? Uh, how does it make a difference besides just knowing something? I mean, good things about theory is like you get to know things, but what is what is the good of knowing if you cannot um, predict or change? But it's important to remember then what attachment theory is. I know that um, we've been looking at this for several videos, uh, but as a quick recap, first of all, this is a theory that is um, posed by a psychoanalyst. Uh, it is a psychoanalytic theory and it comes from that uh, tradition. However, it does changes the tradition a lot. Apart from a psychoanalytic theory, attachment theory is also a, a theory of uh, normal development um, and, and of psychopathology. So normal and abnormal development. And this is really important for psycho, for psychoanalytic theory in general and for attachment theory in particular. Development is a central process. Everything is seen in terms of um, a pathway in which people do not just get sick, but uh, they follow through their lives a process that will be deriving in health or psychopathology. From that developmental point of view of the attachment theory, let's remember that secure attachments give a basic feeling of confidence uh, in relationship to people in the world. Secure attachments, the healthy ones, past and present, facilitate as well the regulation of emotion, stimulation, tension, and impulse control. And this is really important because there is where psychopathology comes from. We do this in a conscious, I mean, we attach in a conscious and unconscious way. Um, our attachment style will uh, be guiding the appraisal that we do of other people, of the world, and of ourselves. And in, in the case of this developmental way of seeing things, also we have to think of social development because the child acquires a capacity to explore the world, but not only the material world, but the social world, the world of being with other people. And if that exploration has um, good results, it's allowed and it has good results, uh, then you can obviously think about how this has an effect in the capacity to feel effective, to feel competent, in the world. So it has to do also with ourself, our, our self-concept, our self-esteem, etc. This theory, attachment theory, is also um, a representation of experience. It's a theory of how we represent our own experience. And this has to do with like memory systems. And we're going to see that in a minute. But first, I wanted to tell you also that um, attachment theory is a theory of affectivity, of emotions, uh, because emotions for this theory play an intermediary role between the evaluation of danger uh, and then the activation, of course, of the attachment system and behavior, uh, which act as signs that highlight or manifest, uh, they make salient certain interactions with people, with the environment and with people. So a baby is scared and that is an emotion, for example, and then that emotion is going to be illuminating how it is resolved or not as the way that we're going to keep seeing the world. 
we can think then also that uh, this development on how to see the world and how to explore um, the social world, other people around, also makes attachment theory a theory of empathy, uh, a theory of being able to recognize uh, other people's mental states, uh, to get sensitive to them, to basically to develop mentalization, as we've seen before. And very importantly, especially when we think about clinical work, is that attachment theory also is a theory of intergenerational transmission of attachment patterns. So why that is important, especially in clinical work, because it gives us uh, the reason to look for a history of the person we have in our consulting rooms, uh, a history that not only belongs to them, but to the generations before them. And we can be uh, gaining insights by knowing how the previous generations did when it came to parenting, to having attachment relationships, to understanding each other's mind, etc. And from there, we can directly derive as well that the attachment theory then is a theory of trauma. And what kind of trauma? Interpersonal trauma, particularly. Early trauma that has to do with relationships, attachment relationships, dependent relationships that did not work well. And also attachment theory, especially for clinical work, it's important because it tells us about anxiety, about the nature of anxiety and what are the mechanisms for coming down that anxiety. And that had to do with interpersonal relationships, which is one of the basic ideas of um, psychoanalysis. The fact that because of the arisal of anxiety, uh, we tend to defend, we tend to repress things, etc. And from the beginning, it's been like that. For Freud, for example, anxiety was at the beginning um, a sign of non-discharged libido, like a toxic transformation of that libido into anxiety. But then later, uh, in 1926, anxiety is that what becomes mobilized in danger situations that actually kind of remind, reminds us, are reminiscent of situations where, where we were children and we were helpless. So it starts taking a little bit of shape there. While for attachment theory and for John Bowlby, anxiety and fear are signs that accompany evaluations of danger in a child. But then it starts because of this danger is resolved by an attachment relationship. Then anxiety is kind of transferred. It's felt not only when there is a danger to life, a, a very important um, life-threatening situation, etc., but anxiety is also felt when we see the possible loss or disruption of an attachment relationship. That's why we feel anxious when uh, we are unaccompanied or alone or someone leaves us, someone we love leaves us. If we think about like clinical work and, and first of all, psychopathology, um, according to attachment theory, psychopathology, it would be regarded as, um, as a person having suffered or still be suffering the consequences of disturbed patterns of attachment. We have to think that then the modifications that attachment theory or the novelty of attachment theory within the field of psychoanalysis and psychotherapy, that it should be accompanied by some sort of a special technique. But it happens that in the integration of attachment theory in a psychotherapeutic practice, there has been a lot of, let's say, copy and paste. Uh, so we have kind of our mind with the idea of attachment, but we copy from other schools of psychoanalytic thought uh, 
interpretation, uh, the use of transference, etc., and try to accommodate them a little bit to this idea of attachment. But that implies also that we're ignoring something of the corpus of uh, research in attachment, which is that Bowlby, John Bowlby, did have particular ideas on psychotherapy and technique. Through his work, um, John Bowlby um, shows us a series of psychotherapists' tasks. So the tasks that a psychotherapist has to do in order to be applying this theory in a practice. And for the people who study attachment theory or know a little bit about it, even just by watching these videos, uh, we can already guess uh, several of these tasks that uh, translate into psychotherapeutic technique. For example, super important one would be that the therapist has to show empathy to create a secure base uh, from which to promote trust in the therapeutic relationship and allow the exploration. But in this, in this case, it's not the baby's exploration of the toys, is this patient's exploration of his, his or her inner mind and interpersonal life. This is kind of important in terms of technique. It's not only obvious to be empathic, etc., and to, and to try to promote this, um, this exploration, but also we do it explicitly. So if we are able to actually recruit an important part of the mind of the patient into this task of exploring, then it's less necessary to do interpretation of resistance, for example, pretty classic in psychoanalysis, because we're going to have less of the patient resisting and we're going to be able to recruit them every time there is a impasse to a relationship to say, look, this is happening to us. So once we open the door to explore the inner, uh, the inner world of the patient, then what do we explore? Explore and understand in what situation this patient finds themselves right now. Importantly, what is the role that this patient has played in creating the situation that uh, he is, or he or she are right now? And how they've been choosing people, for example, to which to form bonds, to interact with them, and how these bonds help or not uh, with the situation that the person is presenting this complaint. So if this complaint has anything to do with relationships, we believe that they do, but how? This is what we have to explore. And we, we explore this, we're exploring basically what Bobby called the internal working models. So how do I use relationships uh, to um, understand the world, to interpret the world, to interpret other people's behavior, and ultimately to interpret our own self-value and who we are and how lovable or not we are. This exploration is done, as I was saying, in a developmental way. So trying to gather a history of how a person has been acquiring these internal working models and how the internal working models start fun functioning in the way that we interpret the world and other people's intentions. And many times they do it automatically, most of the times very, very unconsciously. So we do this in a developmental way, in a historical way. And when this happens, usually we're going to elicit emotion, emotion that might happen in the session or might happen later in the week that the person feels a bit more emotional. Well, we are kind of facilitating that this happens. And once this happens, we can start working with how do we regulate these emotions. 
And an important thing of regulating the emotions is, is that, that at the beginning, when we're babies, our primary attachment figure would be the one regulating us uh, by doing something that we need. Uh, but then slowly we start internalizing this and it's us who've internalized these functions of the primary attachment caregiver to calm ourselves, calm our, ourselves, to regulate our own emotions, especially negative emotions. It might happen that we end up in therapy many, many times exploring also trauma, um, especially when uh, the impairments of attachment are severe or profound, we can actually expect the existence of, existence of some early trauma, usually a, a re interpersonal, relational trauma, trauma that happens within the attachment relationship. So what happens to, for example, transference, well, which is such a core tenet of the psychotherapeutic technique in psychoanalysis. We still do from attachment theory a, a, an interpretation of the transference, uh, but it's more contextualized in a way because we've been acquiring this history of the person. The idea would be that transference uh, reflects in the analytic relationship, in the psychotherapeutic relationship, what is the internal working model of that person. So we're not only going to think this is your father, this is your mother. We're going to think this is an internal working model. It's something that became internalized. Uh, it has a function in the way that you interpret the world and have them self-regulate. And it, it became implicit or automatic or unconscious. So we already find in transference, in the interpretation of the transference, the idea of an internal working model that we can generalize. So Bolby spent some time in relating the work of attachment, um, attachment therapy, attachment technique by referring to, um, the different systems of memory. So for example, semantic memory, that one that has to do with, uh, what we learn about the objects of the world, the one that has the words in it, uh, all the words that we can remember and how we can name things. But there is also another kind of memory that is episodic memory, that is the one that actually tells stories, uh, the events that happen in our life, um, our narrative, our, our narrative of identity, that is called the episodic memory. And both the semantic, the, the one made of words, uh, of concepts, and the episodic one, the one that's made of narratives and histories, are called explicit memories. There is also an implicit memory, and this is not only psychoanalytic, this is very um, widespread in psychology. There is a, an implicit memory, a procedural memory, a memory of the know-how. And it's something that we rarely put in words. Sometimes we cannot even so ask a person how they, how they walk. They work, they can walk perfectly, but the, from then to tell you how it is. So it's, it's the know-how more than the declarative part of memory. And in this know-how, not only there is walking or tying your shoes up or etc. is about this procedural automatic way of relating to people. So we do have a system of memory that is working, let's say backstage and is um, informing us about how to relate, how to uh, interpret the social world. It's a memory, and in that memory, we get the important early stages of attachment relationships. So in therapy, what would we do? A historical reconstruction, basically, an exploration of 
the semantic and episodic, episodic memories or the explicit memories, and we try to see how they relate to uh, internal working models, first of all. But very, very importantly, uh, we work uh, with this procedural memory in an experiential way. So we take the relationship between the therapist and the patient and discover in the way that that relationship unfolds, not necessarily because of the words, but in this procedural way, what is going on? If these three kinds of memories are related to internal working models and how do they work? So it's like detecting the existence of these internal working models that are very influential that people might be maybe partially or completely unconscious of, unaware of. And second, um, we invite the patient to examine them um, and consider them if they're still valid because many of these internal working models were creating in a time in which uh, they were necessary, but they're not anymore, which is basically the definition of psychopathology very generally. The fact that it was an adaptation that now it doesn't work anymore. So a good part of the information that determines, determines patterns of interaction in adult life then might be unconscious or uh, much of it will remain indeed out of, outside of awareness uh, and is procedural. So we are not only going to talk and, and listen to the patient, we're going to see what is going on between us. We could say then that psychotherapy is a form of explicit and implicit learning that takes place uh, and is facilitated also by the interaction between two or more participants. I mean, it could be two or more, it could be an individual psychotherapy, but also uh, couples therapy, family therapy, group therapy, etc. But what happens is that it is relational always, but this is not anymore exclusive to attachment uh, theory and the way that we practice with it, because there have been newer developments in psychotherapy uh, while, for example, for Bowlby, for attachment-based psychotherapy, uh, the goal would be the reorganization of these internal working models through the historical exploration. Uh, but we get other schools of psychotherapy, like the Boston Group, uh, in which the goal is the modification of what they call implicit relational uh, knowing. Not that different, of course. Uh, we get, we've seen that before, mentalization-based psychotherapy, but in the end, they are using, using the relationship in a very explicit way in order to uh, know what are the ways of relating that are provoking problems and that they are automatic, unconscious, and how to harness them and be in control again. Thank you for listening. For more content, subscribe to our podcast or find us on our YouTube channel. Psychoanalysis should be free.